0: Hello, and welcome to Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy. I'm a writer, author.
1: And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Schwulis Museum in Berlin.
0: So last week we were talking about the disgraced Congressman George Santos. Who are we talking about this week, Ben?
1: So the subject of today's episode uh, caused such a scandal in her lifetime that even the fictionalized depiction of her life in a novel was almost immediately banned by the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Excellent. Goals. Um, So to, to quote the introduction to that novel, quote, This great affectation of morality that reigns today would be very laughable if it were not very tiresome. Every feuilleton becomes a pulpit, every journalist a preacher. Only the tonsure and the little neckband are wanting. The weather is is rainy and homiletic. One can defend oneself against both by going out only in a carriage and reading *Pantagruel* between one's bottle and one's pipe. So that book, Mademoiselle de Maupin, shocked contemporary readers with its frank, epistolary description of extramarital sex. Um, Its title character uses her captivating wiles to seduce both the narrator, who is a poet, and also his somewhat hapless first mistress, Rosette. So when she first appears, it is disguised as a man, Theodore, and the narrator experiences an epistemic and existential crisis. Has his long-sought object of beauty, an ideal to which Rosette has failed to live up despite fulfilling the narrator sexually, suddenly appeared in the guise of a man? In the world of the book, this occurrence is shocking but not impossible. The narrator gives sodomy, in so many words, a good long thinking over before deciding to follow his hunch. (laughs) Surely, he concludes, anyone so beautiful is actually a woman in disguise. And of course, she is. At court, the characters put on a performance of Shakespeare's play As You Like It, with its own gender swaps and games of chance and confusion. And the love triangle between them grows ever more complicated. Theodore seduces the narrator as a woman and Rosette as a man and when confronted issues a passionate statement of erotic and sexual freedom. Quote, The reality is that neither of those two sexes is mine. I possess neither the foolishness, submissiveness, nor the shyness, nor the mean-spiritedness of women. I do not have the vices of men, their disgusting, vile nature, and their brutal inclinations. I am of a third separate sex which does not yet have a name, higher or lower than them, inferior or superior. I have the body and soul of a woman, the mind and strength of a man, and I have too much or not enough of the one or the other to be able to pair up with either. End quote. Wow. Work. So that's basically the love that dare not speak its name stuff, and it's coming out of the name mouth of a fictional character in the year 1835. Wow. No wonder the censors got their guffs raised. In fact, they knew that this character was based on the fabled exploits of a real person who was not only just as swashbuckling and transgressive as Mademoiselle de Maupin, but rose to the ultimate level of diva. She was, Hugh, an opera singer. (laughs) Okay. This is is the opera episode of uh, this season, is it? This is the opera episode, this is the messy bisexuality episode, this is the sword fighting episode, because today we're going to talk about the omnisexual gender rebel, Julie Dovigny. We're going to talk about their lives, their loves, their husbands, their mistresses, their sword fights, their operatic performances, their lovers, their dazzling successes at the Paris Opera, and their death in a convent at the age of 33. So yeah, they got all of that done by 33. Well, Um, same same age as Christ. Daubigny was the Mozart of bisexual drama. Um, so we should stop here to talk a bit about the relationship between queers and opera. There are, uh, not for no reason, stereotypes of men in fussy ascots fiddling themselves to air checks of Calas' Aida in Mexico City in 1951, or Magda Oliveira's Adriano Le Cover in Amsterdam in 1965, or no, Naples, 1959, no, Amsterdam, 1965. Over such things have friendships ended. I'll have you know I don't own a Um, There are multiple reasons for this. Wayne Kestenbaum uh, has theorized something powerfully erotic about the unamplified human voice in his book, uh, The Queen's Throat. Quote, Listeners love when opera dethrones or kills language. The regicide on these occasions is the revolutionary, pleasure-seeking, penetrated ear. Opera theory teaches us that words master music, but we, in our secret hearts, know music's superiority. And this destruction of language, this reversal of hierarchy, makes opera a fit object for the enthusiasms of sex and gender dissidents. Kestenbaum goes on to note something else, something darker about the relationship between queers and our divas. Quote, the beauty and magnitude of a diva's voice resides, so the iconography suggests, in her deformity. Her voice is beautiful because she herself is not, and her ugliness is interpreted as a sign of moral and social deviance. Reading biographies of divas, I can't ignore the repeated references to physical flaws. Bernadetta Pizzaroni's features horribly disfigured by smallpox, prompting spectators to shut their eyes so as to hear without being condemned to see. Audiences speculated that Maria Malibran was not anatomically a woman, but an androgyne or hermaphrodite, an aberrant physique to match her voice's magic power. Um, to, to bring this into the present day a bit from the opera divas of the 19th century, I think there's something not too dissimilar here about the way that Jennifer Coolidge uh, was handled on the most recent season of White Lotus. Um, and so think about how that the story of that character, this sort of fabulous, if slightly clueless, older woman surrounded by a pack of truly evil gays, um, also served as a metonym for the way that gay men treat that kind of character actress. And this has been going on, I think, for a long time. The gendered speculation there about Malibran is also fascinating. For another reason around the queer fascination with opera is its troubling of gender roles both on and off the stage. Yes, as Catherine Clément and other feminist critics have argued, opera presents the undoing of women on stage. That's Catherine Clément's book, Opera or the Undoing of Women. Operas in the standard repertoire end with heroines. Get ready for this. Throwing themselves off of cliffs, the flying Dutchman, throwing themselves off of churches, Tosca, succumbing to, to tuberculosis that does not interfere with their ability to sing high seas, Traviata and Bohem, being entombed alive, Aida, committing suicide, Madama Butterfly. Immolating themselves and in process causing the end of the world, das Ring Nibelungen, dying of a mysterious sort of love disease, Tristan and Isolde, dancing themselves to death after murdering their stepmother, Electra, poisoning themselves with poison they have in a Byzantine cross around their neck, Fedora, being poisoned by poisoned flowers sent by a princess jealous of their talent and of their boyfriend, Adriana Lecouvreur, and being crushed in a staged avalanche, Lawali. <laughs> The critic Sylvia Corman once said that for the composer Puccini, there are only two kinds of women, dead or Miss Piggy. (laughs) But all those deaths and all those Miss Piggy diva outs are accompanied by feats of undeniable physical and artistic strength. High notes hurled into the back of the theater on the strength of the diaphragm, or even the fact of female presence and celebration and agency. Women have long been celebrated singers and as such able to access the commanding heights of power and control over their lives, at least to a limited extent. And gender representations on stage are also complex. Consider Strauss's Rosenkavalier, one of several operas in which the leading character, a teenage boy, is portrayed by a female singer in drag, and that character is then dressed in drag in the show, a girl pretending to be a boy pretending to be a girl, with all the rich opportunities for play, confusion, transgression, and the performance of gender that that affords. It is in this world of gender play that lesbian opera fascination has often lived. Witness the lesbian fan bases for mezzo-sopranos like Brigitte Fassbender, who play these kinds of roles. So let's get to Julie's life. Uh, Julie was born in Paris in either 1670 or 1673. There are relatively few precise facts about their life other than the details of the opera career, so we're working here from various summaries and articles, and one particularly useful one from the Los Angeles Public Library seemed to me to be the most well-researched and well-backed up. Julie's father was Gaston Daubigny and was an employee of the Master of Horse to King Louis XIV. Louis XIV, the Sun King, reigned for 72 years in an absolutist monarchy, which, centralized the French state, and saw French participation in, and victory in, some of the century's largest wars, including the Franco-Dutch War and the War of the Spanish Succession. Among other things, Louis was a major artistic patron. He founded the Académie Royale de Danse and the Académie d'Opéra, and converted some hunting lodges into the Versailles Palace complex. He renovated the Louvre, and he commissioned major artworks. Um, I should have inserted this before starting the French names portion of this, but I apologize to France and its people for what I am doing. Um, Julie grew up in this court near the commanding heights of French power, but was marked by her father's status as a bit of a rascal. He lived hard and was known for sword fights, gambling, and nightlife. He insisted that his daughter receive a full education of the kind that was usually only for boys, and so Julie learned... All the academic subjects next to France's future courtiers, and also took up fencing at the age of 12 and uh, both competed against and often defeated uh, men. And this was when she first started dressing in men's clothing, which they would do for their entire life, uh, mostly offstage. They actually mostly played female roles on stage, which is interesting. Female cross-dressing in France has a long history. Most famously, Joan of Arc joined French armies dressed as a man during the Hundred Years' War and became both a national heroine and a lesbian icon. During the reign of Louis XIV, there was a series of social conflicts known as the Fronde, in which noblemen sought to assert their power against the growing absolutist monarchy and were defeated. During this time, female cross-dressing increased significantly, both as a way for women to participate in military campaigns and as a way to ensure safety while traveling. This led to a significant literary and artistic culture that eroticized cross-dressing alongside other kinds of gender and sex transgression. In his book, Hidden Agendas, Cross-Dressing in 17th Century France, Joseph Harris points to literary and cultural depictions as an indication that this, that cross-dressing, was a very important and interesting topic to reading publics. There were debates about whether or not cross-dressing was a symptom of broader social disorder and breakdown. While the Fronde ended 20 years before D'Aubigny's birth, it was in the climate left by that event that they began to crossdress. Harris describes radically different attitudes towards male and female cross-dressing, examining the relationship between theatrical cross-dressing and what he calls transvestite poetics, as well as the ways that cross-dressing could allow women to have some form of liberation from patriarchal dominance. So I think this complex web of cultural meanings explains why uh, Daubigny was able to get away with cross-dressing in the world of the court at the time. So Julie became the mistress of their father's employer, the Count d'Aubignac. Uh, When Julie was married off to a tax clerk, the Count simply banished the tax clerk to the provinces and kept Julie around to continue their relationship, as you do. Um, it's apparently not clear whether the count decided Julie was too much to handle or whether Julie herself got bored, but she soon took up with a fencing master named Seran, who promptly killed a man in a duel, uh, and then the two of them fled Paris as a couple, pursued by Nicolas Gabriel de la Reynie, who was the founder of what became the first modern police force, Be Gay, Do Crimes, ACAB. So uh, De La Rigny had been made the first lieutenant general of police in 1667, and the role of this new police force was uh, considered a solution to crime, uh, to control the growth of slums and to enforce boundaries between rich and poor areas of the growing city, um, none of which are things that police do anymore at all. Um, as Alex Vitali writes in his book, The End of Policing, quote, policing emerged as new political and economic formations developed producing social upheavals that could no longer be managed by existing private, communal, and informal processes. This can be seen in the earliest origins of policing, which were tied to three basic social arrangements of inequality in the 18th century, slavery, colonialism, and the creation of a new industrial working class. This created what Alan Silver calls a policed society, in which state power was significantly expanded in the face of social upheavals and demands for justice. So uh, the, what De La Rigny does in Paris prefigures a bit what uh, Vitali writes about, uh, which mostly his story mostly takes place in uh, the UK. But I think it's uh, an interesting prefiguration, interesting to see how forms that um, occur with absolutist monarchy uh, then actually work pretty well um, when, we, when we start moving into industrial yeah. capitalism. So De La Rigny combined four police forces into one and charged them with patrolling the streets and enforcing laws. And he built himself a major network of informers who made him despised. This was uh, Paris at this time was one of the first sort of police state where you'd be worried that your neighbor would be listening or, or would turn you in. Uh, as Holly Tucker writes in her book, City of Light, City of Poison, Murder, Magic and the First Police Chief of Paris, quote, Much of La Reynie's success came from a tireless worth ethic combined with an insatiable thirst for information. At all hours of the day and night, couriers on foot and horseback arrived at his compound-like home near the Louvre on the Rue des Boulois. The couriers uh, delivered updates from the wardens in charge of supervising the city's overflowing prisons, whose names, the Bastille, the Grand Châtelet, and the Dungeon of Vincent, filled Parisians' hearts with dread. They also brought handwritten accounts from each of the city's 48 commissioners responsible for reporting the daily activities in their local quarter. He received daily updates from a web of civil servants, lawyers, judges, doctors, and merchants. But by far the most interesting missives came from the army of spies and informants that the police chief employed in his efforts to keep crime at bay. Their reports arrived written in invisible ink, stuffed into wigs, or sewn into jackets. So, uh, continuing to quote from uh, Holly Tucker's book here, um, he, quote, started his campaign with a series of ordinances designed to establish unequivocally who was in charge of cleaning up the streets. To the grumbling of citizens, he imposed a mud tax on every Parisian who had a lodging or business within the city intended to offset the substantial costs related to street maintenance. There were swift and steep penalties for late payment or refusal to pay, including the confiscation of the inhabitants' furniture, end quote. And uh, another thing that De uh, really La insisted on was that the streets be lit. This was the first set of public streetlights, and this was to deter crime and also antisocial behavior like sodomy and sex work. And so, actually, the City of Lights owes its name to this odious cop. Wow. But at this point, Julie and her lover were happily away from Paris, uh, on the run through the French provinces, and making do by giving fencing demonstrations with both dressed in male attire. Now, somehow, during this time, Daubigny went from giving fencing demonstrations as a man to giving opera performances as a woman with no musical training. We're sure it's the same woman. We are sure it's the same woman. But uh, I think something that goes some way to explain how that's even possible um, is a little bit about the history of opera. And so uh, opera as a modern art form originates at the end of the 16th century, and so it only starts about 80 years before Daubigny was born. And so the time we're talking about uh, in this episode, opera is not yet an art form with a boatload of traditions, rules and formalities. There are those things, but it's I mean, opera is as old in the time of this episode as film is now. Uh, And so there's it's not that there's such um, things are are less set in amber um, and it's very much still a living um, and sort of even growing, birthing, uh, evolving art form opera was born out of a renaissance desire to recover the unity of drama and music that was found in classical theater and while it has always been a courtly art form it also found expression right from the beginning in popular festivals in other words it could be a sort of a social bridge a way for performers or even audiences to transit between different social worlds we also, and I think this is really interesting and important to remember for, for people now, we have little to no idea what the operatic voices of this time actually sounded like. So that operatic sound that we consider to be standard today, when you sort of close your eyes and think of the, the opera singers you've heard, you think of Pavarotti or something, that sort of pinging sound full of what's called squillo, which is that hard vibration that helps the voice travel, that sort of, uh, you know, that, that thing, that would not have been necessary. Uh, Theatres were smaller. Orchestras were smaller. And it's that sound and that degree of projection that developed in the 19th century. And that's what requires the specialist technical training to even do. Right. Like you you can you you can't really you, you. Maybe you can, but it's very difficult to produce those noises in a way that's sustainable without having a really profound technical understanding, um, and that's just not true if you're working in smaller theaters and if you're not having to project as much. So so we actually just don't know what these voices really sounded like. So, of course, so they, they could have just sounded like regular singers. I mean, yes and no, because what you think a regular singer sounds like has only existed since the microphone, right? Because microphone singing is incredibly soft it's often too soft to even fill a room yeah. right um microphone singing is the is in the same register as um as a lullaby or someone singing while doing the dishes i mean it's just sort of it's really almost under the breath um and you think of like early blues recordings and how how much it often sounds like they're shouting and it's because that's a style of singing where even if you're not projecting over an orchestra in a 10,000 uh, sorry a 5,000 seat theater you still have to fill a noisy Uh, bar
0: talking.
1: And so we really, I mean, we really don't know what voices sounded like. We know what late 19th century, early 20th century voices sounded like from the earliest recordings. Um, And we know obviously what voices have sounded like since, but um, everything, I mean, and and when operas and music from this period are performed so much about performance practice is a series of really educated guesses um, about what projection might've sounded like. People try to read uh, books that were written, um, to try to figure out you know what was the ideal of singing or what was the ideal of but but all of that has always been subjective too so it's it's really um it's really an interesting sort of mystery so julie joined uh, the opera de marseille which was the second opera company in france was founded in 1685 and it did its productions at this time on a tennis court um everything happened in tennis courts um in france between 1600 and 1800 including much of the french revolution apparently Um, So quickly, uh, Julie became a valued member of the company, uh, not least because of her dramatic onstage antics. It was at this time that they had their first affair with a woman. Uh, So the daughter of a local merchant came to a performance and became captivated with the singer and the two quickly became an item. They lived out their trysts in backstage dressing rooms, boarding houses, and the other kinds of places that disreputable theater people get up to their disreputable behavior. Appalled at the goings on, the young woman's father had her sent off to a convent. Are you ready for this, Hugh? Gone. Julie decided to join the convent herself in order that the two of them could continue their relationship. (laughs) But they didn't find right. (laughs) But they didn't find convent life particularly stimulating, Uh, despite the often quite elaborate lesbian and other sexual goings on in early modern convents goings-on that were well discussed in uh, Judith Brown's lesbian microhistory, Immodest Acts, which was improbably recently adapted by Paul Verhoeven into the film Benedetta, which if you haven't seen, you must. Um, The religious vows of chastity did end up impeding the two women's affair. So guess what they did? Uh, Run away? Oh, they didn't just run away. Uh, They took the corpse of a recently deceased nun, they put it in (laughs) Julie's bed, and then they set the entire convent on fire, and then they ran away. Um, And (laughs) they did this because the hope was that it would be assumed Julie had died in the accidental Ah, fire. Ah,
0: faked her own death.
1: Yes. uh, So uh, so Julie uh, was prosecuted for this by the local parliament, but, get ready for this, was prosecuted as a man because the parliament assumed this was a man dressed as a woman, because no woman could have done something so bold and so daring. Wow. So you'll be noticed that I've been—you'll uh, notice that I've been both uh, veying and sheing Julie throughout this episode, and this has been a very difficult choice. And I want to highlight it here before moving on. Uh, so as opposed to some of the other historical trans and non-binary people we've uh, discussed on the show, um, Julie did not, as far as I know, um, ever insist that. He, or we would say he, if he had insisted, this did not ever insist that they were a man, right? Um, unlike that Prussian soldier whose legal case we featured in our episode on Frederick the Great, the one who um, served in the military as a man, had a uh, fake penis made to have sex with his wife, was tried for the crime of cross-dressing, and then is written about in the eighties as a lesbian, right? Um, mm-hmm. This this seems really different to me. Um, this is not. Julie does not enter into the historical record in what is clearly in that kind of a way, a trans way. But Julie is reported to have cross-dressed well before we know about any affairs with women and did wear men's clothes uh, offstage for much of their life. And so I don't want people to think that Julie occupied anything remotely like a contemporary non-binary or trans mask identity. nor do I want people to think of Julie purely and simply as a woman. And so I'm switching back between they and she. I think both could be smart and ethical choices. um, And I'm switching between them to make us think about what we think, if that makes sense. Yeah. So Julie was prosecuted under a man's name, uh, but by the time the prosecution happened, uh, she was already long gone um, and enjoyed life on the run with her new lover. Uh, But the lover, after a few months, got cold feet and went back to her family. It's uh, nicer in a a warm, well-fed merchant's house than on the road with a destitute outlaw opera singer. Heartbroken, Julie decided to funnel the emotions into singing and took serious lessons with an older singer named Maréchal, who deemed her talent important enough to get into the Paris Opera. At that time, Paris Opera, as now, was one of Europe's most important stages, and Sure enough, by 1690, she made her debut there. Her debut was in an opera by the composer Jean-Baptiste Lully, who was one of the most important opera composers of the time. Um, I want to play people a very short clip of music from that opera just so you can get a feel. So that was the Chacon from Act One of Cadmus and Hermione by um, Jean Baptiste Lully, uh, the piece in which uh, Julie made her Paris opera debut.
0: It's very nice. It's what me, as someone who knows nothing about opera, would think of as like, yeah, early modern.
1: Yeah, Baroque, sort of early Baroque opera. Harpsichord and stuff. Lily, who composed that music, could almost get a whole episode of this show on his own. So I'm going to do a very brief Lily biography because um, you just have to hear this. So uh, Lily was an OG opera queen born in 1632 in Florence. He began his stage career by dressing as Harlequin in Mardi Gras, gay, and after gaining notoriety and favor from the king as a particularly favored dancer, gay, was named (laughs) royal composer for instrumental music, gay. He was extremely attentive to the new operatic trends coming from Italy, gay, and helped found the Paris Opera and create a Parisian operatic style which included collaborations with the playwright Moliere. But Lully's chaotic life and trail of messy gay affairs uh, lived quite publicly, ended up uh, losing him royal favor. Um, He died not soon after, and he died in one of the simultaneously gayest and most horrifying ways I've ever heard of. So at this time, conductors didn't use a baton. Instead, they kept time by (laughs) slamming a walking stick into the ground. Okay. And so during a performance, he smashed up his own foot, but he refused to have it amputated because he didn't want to lose the ability to dance. And this led to gangrene spreading to his brain and killing him. (laughs) So if that's not the gayest way to go, refusing treatment for injuries sustained while conducting an opera because you still want to be able to dance, I don't know what is. Anyway, so Julie's in Paris uh, singing in lily operas, but wait a minute, how is Julie singing at a major court institution under her own name, having escaped with outstanding arrest warrants in Provence and also in Paris? Uh, The answer is that she uh, took up with her old lover, the Count, and got herself a pardon. And then as soon as the pardon was through, dumped the Count and took up with the singer Gabriel Vincent Thévenard. And by this time, Julie was already legendary for their offstage behavior, which was a big part of the appeal. Then, as now, opera fans do love a messy diva. Helping to inaugurate a tradition of theatrical and over-the-top curtain calls, Dauvigny bowed to the audience after the first performance and removed her helmet, tossing her hair over her shoulders, and the public went crazy. Amazing. Uh, by the way, this continues. I once I saw a few months ago a performance by the soprano uh, Angela Giorgio, whose curtain call involved um, waving to each corner of each balcony, kissing the stage, bowing, curtsying, several beauty queen oxygen mask poses, um, a couple of surprised. For me, really, for me, this, <laughs> this is really <laughs> this is an ongoing tradition. Um, so anyway. There were, however, limits to the behavior that even Parisian opera fans were willing to put up with, and as we all know, they're willing to put up with a lot. Um, La Maupin, as she became known, ended up getting into trouble uh, because she was at court dressed as a man at a ball and kissed a woman who was being simultaneously propositioned by three different noblemen and then challenged them all to a duel. Um, And so once again, she fled Paris and this time ended up in Brussels and because her fame had preceded her, was immediately accepted into the opera company. And so she would do things uh, on stage, like actually stab herself with a real dagger instead of a stage dagger to get more publicity. And so the managers loved her.
0: I once saw a thing that was, I I guess, like a experimental opera at at the Barbican of some sort. Uh, I don't know much about opera, but it was, to my mind, the worst piece of art I've ever seen in my entire life, uh, which ended with this similar sort of ten, 10 curtain calls. And then the director coming on for a and a and the first question of the q and A, I I kid you not, was something along the lines of, um, is it difficult to work with such a burden of genius on your shoulders?
1: Oh, <laughs> God. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. So anyway, um, Julie ended up becoming another nobleman's mistress in Brussels, but um, eventually he also decided he couldn't deal with her anymore and so ended up offering her an enormous sum of money to leave him. And so she uh, wrote uh, her new friend, the king's brother, got herself a pardon, threw the money at the nobleman's feet and left him to return to her career in Paris. There's a story that at some point during this whole journey, she served as a lady's maid to a countess in Madrid, and one night did her hairdo with radishes instead of pins in order to spite her, but it's hard to figure out if that's apocryphal or not. I don't know how pins—sorry, radishes would hold together a hairstyle, though. I mean, I, listen, I don't understand how any Baroque French hairstyles were held together at all. Think of, you know, the that famous one of the ones with model ships in and stuff, so really... Yep. Uh, Radishes are hardly the strangest thing, but um, in general, uh, Daubigny's life is difficult to track down firmly, and so I'm grateful most of all to a guide I mentioned already from the L.A. Public Library that was written by one of their reference librarians, Alan Westby, for providing the backbone of research and narrative for this episode. Daubigny sang as a contralto, a low female voice. Given that they were also infamous for cross-dressing and that opera has, as we've already said, a reputation for gender trouble on stage, we might assume that they sang a lot of those kinds of gender-crossing trouser roles. But in fact, they did not. They were famous for playing women. But many of the characters they played, think Pallas Athena, the Priestess of the Sun, a warrior princess in the opera Tancrede, etc., were not swooning lovers, but instead women of power, strength, and political authority. This tradition, that of mezzos playing this kind of powerful political female role, also has a long tradition. Wayne Kestenbaum in The Queen's Throat writes of the lesbian diva These anecdotes tell me that divas required other women as models, mentors, and admirers. Without the example of other forthright independent women, how could a diva imagine and pursue this vocation in which subservience to men seemed to play no part? The diva exposes her capacity for independent pleasure. Her joy comes from the body, the throat, the cavities no one in the audience can see. She presents the uncomfortable and anti-patriarchal spectacle of a woman taking her body seriously, challenging, enjoying, and nourishing it, end quote. Yeah, I get that. The classic book and travesti, women, gender, subversion, and opera, co-edited by Corinne Blackmer and Patricia Juliana Smith, praises not only, quote, the spectacle of female operatic cross-dressing, but also, quote, the homoerotic vocal dynamics of saphonics, a term coined by Elizabeth Wood, who contributed to the volume, to describe queer female eroticism in the human voice. Only an opera, write Blackmer and Smith, could, quote, a woman, through the power of her voice, transcend her gender and, more than love, rescue her own sex. D'Aubigny was described by the diarist Philippe de Cossillon, the Marquis de Danjou, as having the most beautiful voice in the world. Uh, her exploits continued. Uh, after being rejected by the soprano Fanon Morchot, she, uh, she attempted suicide, uh, but didn't succeed. Her last relationship began in 1703 and was with Madame de la Marquise de Florinsac, who was known as the most beautiful woman in France. She boasted a list of lovers with a length appropriate to such a renowned beauty, but Daubigny was apparently the first person she'd been with who wasn't a man. The two lived in connubial bliss for two years until the Marquise died suddenly of a fever. Bereft, Daubigny joined a convent again, deciding to retire from the stage and from public life rather than processing this heartbreak. Again, when joining the convent, Julie Daubigny was 30 years old. Olivia Giavetti, in an article about her own queer opera explorations, quotes a trans non binary opera performer named Aidan Feltkamp as saying, quote, Most trans narratives circle around this idea of gender dysphoria, which makes sense because that's something you deal with every day. But to me, it was like finding gender euphoria in this place that made sense to me now. It wasn't moving away from something, it was moving towards. This is in result to the sort of gender crossing on stage. What did Daubigny move towards in hers, in their short life on the operatic stage? Olivia Giovetti speaks about the, quote, towering presence of women in opera, quote, women playing women, women playing men, women playing women that were, for purposes of plot, disguised as men. Daubigny played this game on and off stage, emblematizing the gender trouble of the queer art of opera at its very beginning. It's no wonder that the legend was taken up in Théophile Gautier's novel in a 1966 Italian film. Dr. Burney, in his musical tour through France and Italy, summed up her life thus, quote, this extraordinary siren of the French opera fought and loved like a man and resisted and fell like a woman. She married a young husband and ran away with a fencing master. Soon after, she set fire to a convent and carried away in triumph from it a young lady of her acquaintance. She went to Paris and became an opera singer, caned every man who affronted her, killed three in duels, and after many adventures, quitted the stage, quote. A short biography of Daubigny, written in Ireland in the mid-1850s concludes by asking readers to justify its internal contradictions, quote, by remembering what Sir Benjamin Backbite says of Crabtree's relation of the supposed duel between Joseph Surface and Sir Peter Teasel. My uncle's account may be correct, but mine is certainly the most circumstantial. Queer histories exist in these circumstances and stories, in the gossamer threads of gossip that travel across centuries. Julie Daubigny died in 1707 at the age of 33. As one biographer wrote, quote, Destroyed by an inclination to do evil in the sight of her God and a fixed intention not to, her body was cast upon the rubbish heap. She has been remembered not as a piece of rubbish, but as a legend, an icon, and as a great artist. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for listening to the show. A special shout out to those of you who support us every month on Patreon. Uh, That really does help us um, make the show. It helps us um, take the time that we need to do it um and uh, it's really something that we enormously appreciate if uh, you are interested in uh, joining our patreon uh, you can find information about that at uh, badgazepod.com um, there's no special podcast content for patreon listeners um, nothing is locked behind paywalls um, we have some small rewards but really it's just about uh, you supporting something that's important or interesting to you. And um, if that's something that you're able to do, that you're interested in doing, we really, really do appreciate it.
0: Another great way you can help support the show is to check out our book, which we published last year, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. It's out now in hardback from Verso and will be coming out soon in paperback if um, if you prefer paperback. And it covers a whole series of evil and complicated LGBTQ people from history and the way that their relationships affected and were affected by colonialism.
1: Yeah, it's um, "If I Say So myself," a fun read, um, and we really tried to bring the stories together um, into this coherent narrative. Um, it's been a real joy to get to tour it, and uh, if you're interested in the book, you can find out information on the book and on upcoming events that we're doing to support the book at badgazepod.com/book.
0: And now, on with the show. Wow. <laughs> what yes. what a, a sort of short and um, impactful life. Amazing.
1: I mean, I by, am I, now I, by, by the age... icon, I'd say. I am now the age that uh, Julie um, was when going into the convent, and I have um, had no duels. I have had, uh, even more sadly, no premieres on the great operatic stages, despite <laughs> my consistent traversal of the dramatic soprano repertoire two octaves down in the shower and um have never once uh, thrown 40,000 francs at the feet of a nobleman who wanted me to leave him so i don't know what i'm doing i need to catch up <laughs> <laughs> do you think
0: um do you think her fame partly sort of protected her in terms of crime and the law i mean you obviously said that she she um received the pardon which just is- kind of not just surely on the back of her, her, her husband the count or sorry her partner the count but rather you know some willingness the of, of husband, authority for, to, for her to want to get get away with it
1: i think she was actually married to that poor tax collector for her whole yeah, life course, yeah. um who she left who, for the count who she left for the count and who then was never heard from again um yeah you you, you can't be if you're try to have a fabulous career at the Paris opera. You can't have a tax collector husband. It's terribly un um, Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, being a successful performer and a great artist is one of the main ways, as we've seen, that people get away with all kinds of transgression, right? Sexual transgression, yeah. gender transgression. Um, and then in the court world of the sort of Baroque European monarchies, um being an extremely beautiful and compelling woman could also get you a lot of leeway, uh, both in terms of the restrictions often placed upon your own gender, although those were also things that were always very sort of unstable and everything was willing to fall on you, right like you could have this power um you could have this self confidence but uh, it was it was never stable in the way that a man's was it was always sort of under threat and um Th- th- it was very difficult to convert it into something that like, right? Like a, a man with patriarchal title, uh, would, as you aged, you would be, your life would become more stable, right? And it's difficult for a, for a woman of this kind to to find a kind of lifelong stability, but, but there was a lot of power to be had. Right. Yeah. Um, and so with this person, you combine those two things, right? You have someone who is uh, both, um, able to get away with murder literally because they're a great artist, um, and someone who's willing to get away with murder because, was able to get away with murder because they're this beautiful and compelling and fascinating uh, or understood as this beautiful and compelling and fascinating woman. Um, and, and that those two things together, I think um, are what are what let this all go on for so long. Right. Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. And I wonder how it would, it would have continued, you know, without the legal status of having a husband a living husband or, you know, being with your husband and without that money, how long she could have continued for, considering that physical charisma is kind of what clearly a lot of people were also attracted to, you know, like I just, I'm not sure how much. Right.
1: And the act- voice is also I, a physical like charisma, her, her, right?
0: Her, yeah. And her, well, her, you know, I'm not sure how much her intelligence and wit and power, uh, counted, you
1: know, without actually fixed legal status. Absolutely. Um, and, and, you know, the, the voice also has a kind of, um, has a time limit on it. Yeah. And at some point, um, you, you stop being able to do certain things. So it's, um, it's absolutely a, a big part of it. So I was just saying, right, like the, the, this, um, you get it you get away with all this transgression, uh, as a great artist or performer, right? Caravaggio gets away with a lot and right, all the people that we've people that we've looked at on the show before. Yeah. And, um, For uh, Wayne Kestenbaum, right, this, it's exactly this that is part of the appeal, right? He talks about these kind of 19th century divas and these stories about them and the way that the sort of part of the queer appeal of opera is watching these people get away with stuff that, that they're not sort of supposed to get away with. Yeah. Um, and I think that's part of why that history is part of why um, this kind of diva mythos has really remained attached to the art form even at a time when it really must strenuously be said, like no one behaves in the way that when you think of opera diva behave, like literally diva behavior is what we say when we talk about people throwing their weight around and being impossible. Um, no one in the business really behaves like that anymore. If they did, they wouldn't work. Um, it's just not possible. Uh, I mean, the, the last Collis is probably the last one or Kathy battle who, um, Infamously did things like uh, hold up performances with an entire orchestra making union overtime for an hour and a half so that the driver could go back to her hotel and get the right earrings um, another great uh, another great Kathy battle story is when she screamed at people for looking at her during a stage rehearsal this This all ends in the nineties right and it's part of it is tied to um, part of it is tied to the fact that the um uh, people who work in this art form are no longer famous enough to get away with it, right? Like in the 19th century, in the Paris of her time, Julie Daubigny is the biggest star, right? She's the, that's the A-list. And opera singers are now not the A-list. And so you don't get away with as much, um, either in terms of transgression um, or in terms, although the, the way that kind of stars get away with transgression or don't really change is with the advent of of certain kinds of media consumption, right? Right. Um, or uh, as much in terms of this kind of mythical diva behavior, but I think yeah. this 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 gender transgression element uh, is one of the reasons why gay opera fans sort of like diva behavior, right? Um, it's why you know that that, that the, the stories that I'm telling you, right, they're they're traded with with a smile or a wink. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think also it's in the work, 90s, you know, like it's like that kind of like.
0: Yeah. In the 90s, it just switches over, I think, far more to pop stars. Like, this is what you're describing to me. I'd describe, if someone asked me about diva behavior, it'd be Mariah Carey, because I'm not not an opera queen. Yes.
1: And by the way, Mariah Carey's mother, Patricia Carey, was a very, very fine opera singer um, who was trained by one of the um, major uh, vocal coaches of New York City who trained a lot of the really big names who sang at the Met in the... um, in the seventies and eighties. all
0: right, right. And you can yeah.
1: actually listen to uh, Mariah Carey's mother sing La Traviata um, online, if you so choose. Um, she's but w- very, very when good.
0: I, when I hear these sort of tales of Mariah Carey's um, diva behavior, uh, probably apocryphal, but you know, like, I don't know, she wants a room of Labrador puppies or she won't take more than three stairs in any flight of stairs or something like this. Uh, that's positive to me, you know? Like exactly what you say, like, I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. Even though, of course, it's completely unreasonable and absolutely terrible right. and for if, all if the poor were, staff who have to meet yeah.
1: these demands. If you're one of the poor bedraggled gays who has to run around following or around fulfilling yeah. these requests, it's not great. But yeah, no, if you if you you, you can sort of love it from from afar. Yeah. Um and there's also often I mean in the opera in the 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 um in the fandom, right? The 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 diva that you like is using her diva behavior to protect the art form or to defend some holy art. And the diva you don't like is making petty requests, right? So the 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 story that you tell about the diva that you like is that she refused to do XYZ because it would have it's a, it's a travesty and it will have nothing to do with the piece, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the diva you don't like. Um, this is another Kathy battle story shows up, um, decides that she doesn't like the second dressing room, goes into the first dressing room, takes the personal items and costumes of the soprano in the first dressing room, throws them on the floor outside and moves her own things in, um, like, and again, you hear that. And also part of you goes like, yes, you know, like get it, but also like, imagine being that poor other woman and like showing up and all of your shits on the floor. Yeah,
0: yeah, I mean, yeah, the, I mean, it's the other behavior around the performance is itself part of the performance.
1: Yeah, and these people, I mean, and this was absolutely true for Daubigny, right? Like, people went to see these performances because this was this infamous cross dressing, sword fighting, wanted on seven continents, you know, like, that's why people went. um And I'm sure it was a beautiful voice, but the fame came from the came from the exploits
0: absolutely do you think there's also something going on in terms of um once you reach that sort of untouchability in terms of like criminal transgression it also allows you to open up to a sort of as you mentioned like gender and sexual behavior transgression so that there becomes a certain freedom to act the way you want and so that if you are like it sounds she was, like a bisexual woman, then that becomes something that's possible for you.
1: Yeah, although it's something that began before. I think it's not actually right. I mean, the the cross-dressing begins very early in life, right? Um, And then the um, affairs with women begin only after the first expulsion from Paris. So maybe there is something to that. Maybe there is something to this kind of growing sense of uh, power and possibility. But it really does seem like this is someone who is completely unable to be anything other than who they were at any given moment. I mean, this is someone who was not able to, who, who, who was not able to or willing to um, compromise or, or sort of consolidate various gains, right? You'd think that after one or two of these kind of spectacular high-low cycles, you'd think, okay, how do I stay here, right? What do I, like, maybe I'll, like, I'm at the Paris Opera, my first set of arrest warrants have all been taken care of, maybe now... I'll behave myself a little bit, but no, I'm going to go s- start dueling multiple noblemen at the same time at court and like making out with women while dressed as a man at court in front of people. Like, um, She sounds like a blast. I know. Really, uh, this is definitely someone who um, I would very much like to hang out with, although I would also be a little bit scared. And actually, she... I think that some someone needs to uh, write a new opera about uh, her life. Uh, I would love to see that. And I have some ideas about who uh, who should play her, but uh, Emily D'Angelo, I think, would be great. Um, but I think this would be like this would be the perfect subject of uh, of some kind of um, new operatic yeah. piece. I mean, what's better than this?
0: So all this, I think, begs a question. Uh, to return to the the podcast title: Good Gay, Bad Gay, Good
1: Not Gay, Bad Not Gay. Well. Um, I think definitely someone who had, someone for whom uh, gender nonconformity was an important part of her life, um, and someone who had a number of really important um, life affairs with women, other women, including uh, the sort of last uh, one, which seems to have been the great, the great love of Julie's life. So uh, I definitely think gay, um, at least gay as we define it on the show, right? Big open gay, which includes, yeah. which includes bi, which she was. Um, in terms of, um, bad, that's really interesting, um, because this is definitely someone who is a scoundrel, a rascal, a rogue, an absolute troublemaker, but also someone who seems to have been an absolute delight and someone who, um, I actually end up having a really profound affection for. And I think a lot of other people do too. I buy that. So, if people want to know more about Julie, um, what are some of the
0: sources you used for this episode?
1: So, there is the aforementioned LA Public Library um, write up, uh, which is, I found really useful also as sources, uh, links to a lot of other sources, um, a lot of information about the sort of French opera of the time, if that's something that um, interests anyone else. Um, there's the novel, Mademoiselle de Maupin, the novelization of Julie's life, uh, in which it's not an opera singer, but. Um, It's apparently a fairly informed discussion of um, the sort of personality and some of the some of the lives and uh, loves. There is for the uh, faggot uh, opera obsessive Wayne Kestenbaum's book, The Queen's Throat, opera um, Sex and the Mystery of Desire. There is for the uh, lesbian opera fanatic, the book and travesty women, gender, subversion and opera. Uh, both of those, very fun. There is the book, Hidden Agendas, Cross-Dressing in 17th Century France by Joseph Harris for information about that. Um, for uh, information on policing, Alex Vitale's The End of Policing. For uh, the story of that first police chief of Paris, uh, Holly Tucker's book, City of Light, City of Poison, Murder, Magic, and the First Police Chief of Paris. And then several other sources, um, which we'll link to in the show notes as well. Well, thank you very
0: much. You've been listening to Bad Gays. My name's Hugh Lemmy. If you want to follow me on socials, I'm at Hugh Lemmy on Twitter.
1: And I am at Ben Writes Things.
0: And you can follow us on Twitter at Bad Gays Pod or on Instagram. And also check out our website. We've got some great merch, some uh, cool t-shirts, and also um, there you can buy our book, Bad Gays, A Homosexual History. Great. Until next week.
1: Bye. Bye.